Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to introduce a new friend of mine, Father Kyle Logan, who is the Associate Rector at the Eucharist Church in San Francisco under the, the Diocese of um, Churches for the Sake of Others, Bishop Todd Hunter. So he's here, and he's going to be preaching this morning's message. So welcome. So, Lord, we pray your blessings on uh, Father Kyle as he preaches your word. Open up our hearts, Lord, to hear well and to respond in obedience to everything that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Decorating to prepare for Christmas. 
they do more than just listen to Christian music. They actually lean into Christian celebrations. I see the nativity scenes, the tinsel, the Christmas lights, and the advent wreaths everywhere around the city. It's more than just Christmas music. And I'm sure the same is true in Long Beach. Father Scott has told me how our cultures are not too dissimilar. So I'm sure you've recognized these same cultural phenomena around town. Long Beach has transformed. And it raises the question for us this morning. What's the deal? Why does culture suddenly flip a switch and willingly subject itself to Christian music, some of which is filled with blatant gospel themes? I spent some time thinking about this in the last month or so. I think what I've come to realize, at least in my own head, that ultimately, everybody, Christian or otherwise, everybody needs a little Christmas. This world aches for it. And each year around this time, all of the decorations and all of the music, all of the selfless gift-giving, all of these things offer to us the hope that humanity needs. Woven deep into the fabric of our human existence, we all know that we need a Savior. We all need Christmas. Much of Advent is a season that stays in the dark. You know what I mean by that? We focus on the darkness around us because that's what makes us want the light. Just this week, I met a girl named Nala who was assaulted, literally, just minutes before we met. She was walking to school barefoot, sobbing. So I asked if she was okay, and she told me the horrific story. I walked the the rest of the way with her to school because she was so scared. What do you say in that kind of a situation? What kind of world do we live in where a man can just jump out of a car and physically assault a sophomore in high school? This is that darkness. This is the darkness making us cry out, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. A lot of people come to church during Advent expecting to hear a lot of happy and joyful kinds of sermons that are typically associated with the holidays. But when you show up to an Anglican church during Advent... You end up hearing sermons of judgment and wrath for the second coming. Even last week in the Gospel reading, John the Baptist called his listeners a brood of vipers. This isn't how you spread Christmas cheer. (laughs) So what's Advent doing? What has it been preparing us for? What do we need? I hope that after sitting in the dark for these four weeks, our desires have slowly begun to be reoriented. During Advent, we look at this world and we see how it's aching to be fixed. We live in a weary world. All the violence, all the dirty politics, all the greed, they overwhelm us. This world is broken, and the people around us are broken. We ourselves are broken. I see the world's influence over myself every day. I'm impatient, I'm mean, I'm unkind, I'm greedy, I'm judgy. I need to be fixed. And after focusing on this darkness, I think we all eventually have to say to ourselves and to each other, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We need Christmas. We need you. In the gospel reading we have today, we are given the story of Jesus' coming. The Virgin Mary has become pregnant, and presumably out of fear for what might happen to a young girl becoming pregnant out of wedlock, The story says that she went with haste 
to visit her aunt and uncle. When her aunt Elizabeth sees her, she exclaims rather radically, The mother of my Lord has visited me. Which refers to the fact that Mary, her younger, carries in her womb the Messiah. The Christ has arrived. It's the dawn of a new day. But looking at the story, it's probably not the kind of arrival we'd expect, or maybe not even the kind that we might want. What we might have expected was the was that the, everything in this world would be fixed as the Messiah arrived. The wrongs would be righted, the broken would be made whole, and the kingdom of God would instantly be inaugurated. But what we learn in the Gospel of Luke is that what Jesus brings with him is somewhat of a disorienting kind of presence. In fact, in this story, we realize that the coming of Jesus is anything but what we expected. In nearly every single birth narrative in the Bible, the promise of a child is usually coupled with an equal desire from the mother. Just think about Abraham and Sarah, how they longed for the son that God promised them. But he kept them waiting for decades before Isaac was born. Or the, per- or the birth of the prophet Samuel, which is a famous story of the infertility of manna that was the infertility of Hannah that was met with the goodness and mercy of God to provide her a child. Even the birth of John the Baptist is one which comes as a total surprise to Zephaniah and his barren wife, Elizabeth. <coughs> but the birth of Jesus is anything like the pattern we've seen in Scripture. The story of his birth essentially surmounts to the antitype of these other stories. Here's a, wo- a woman in her young teens, betrothed, but not yet married, Joseph, and she miraculously becomes pregnant as a virgin. She wasn't longing to be pregnant. This wasn't in her five-year plan. The coming of Jesus doesn't solve anything in Mary's life. In fact, the opposite is true. Mary's pregnancy problematizes her life. And before we get too far into the story, I feel like I should say something about Mary. I want to pause at this part of the story just so that we can admire her for a second. Mary takes what would, that what most would see as a curse from God, conceiving a child when you're engaged but not yet married, and what does she say? My soul magnifies the Lord. Her posture of humility before God, in the case of what most would call unwelcome circumstances, is remarkable. And look at how her aunt, Elizabeth, responds to Mary. Twice in this passage, she says that Mary is blessed. But there's a slight change in the two ways she says it. In the first way, in verse 42, she says it directly to Mary. Blessed are you. But then in verse 45, Elizabeth changes from the second to third person by saying, Blessed is she. Are you catching the difference? It's slight. Blessed are you. Blessed is she. It's like Elizabeth turns her eyes towards us, the readers, and she says, Blessed is she. She's drawing us. Elizabeth is drawing us into the story to not only look at Mary as blessed, but she's also inviting us to say it with her. Blessed is Mary. The Gospel writers didn't shy away from elevating Mary. And I'm not sure we should shy away from that either. Mary's posture of humility and her response to God's radical call in her life are nothing short of righteous and worthy of our attention. But I'm not here to give a robust theological approach to the Virgin Mary, although I do think it's important. 
That's not, the, that's not today's sermon. I'd much rather talk about this thing woven deeply into humanity that has everybody around us yearning for Christmas. What is this? Whenever I look at the story of salvation, I'm always surprised by how God chooses to work. It's like he's always taking people without any power or gifting or charisma, and he somehow changes the world through them. Think about Moses and Paul. Apparently, both of them were lousy public speakers. But the two of them gave us the majority of the Old and the New Testaments. And the story of Christmas is not too dissimilar. God takes a 13-year-old girl, Mary, and through her, he changes the course of creation. I don't mean to sound patronizing, but if I were God, I'm not sure my direct course of action would be to change the world through a teenage girl. I don't mean any disrespect, and it's not even a gender issue for me. I wouldn't choose to use a 13 boy to save the world either. I would much rather enlist the help of an adult. Nonetheless, this is how God chooses to work. And this is God's pattern. He takes situations, people, and objects that appear to be weak, and he showcases his strength through them. Martin Luther has a really good illustration when talking about how God exercises his power in this strange way. He talks about left-handed versus right-handed power. Have you ever heard of this before? Let me explain a little. For those of you raising children or have raised children, I think you've learned to exercise both left-handed and right-handed power. When your kid was smaller, you probably exercised a right-handed power. Right-handed power is using force to get the outcome you want. For example, a spanking is right-handed power. Or when your child misbehaves, you could discipline them by forcing them into a timeout. Right-handed power is pretty handy if your child is running into oncoming traffic. You simply grab them by force and pull them to safety. You catch what I'm saying? Right-handed power is a kind of intervening power to get the outcome you want. Right-handed power is really good for younger kids. But have you ever tried to put a 20-year-old in a timeout? <laughs> I don't think you'll be able to convince your college-age child to sit in a timeout and do something that has displeased you. What you need instead is what Martin Luther calls left-handed power. Left-handed power is paradoxical in nature. At first glance, it looks like weakness. For example, say your child doesn't want to eat real food for dinner. He or she only wants to eat candy. I'm sure we've all been there. Well, not me, but you. <laughs> Right-handed power would force them to eat their veggies or go to bed hungry. It's forceful. But left-handed power would say... Eat all the candy you want. In fact, here's all the candy we've hidden from you since Halloween. Go ahead and eat this. Enjoy your meal. And what happens? Eventually, your child eats so much candy that they feel miserable. And while they're dealing with a stomachache, you'll be sitting at the head of the table, eating chicken, drinking some red wine, and basking in your victory as a parent. Your child learned their very painful lesson after getting themselves sick. What appeared as you giving in, what appeared as being weak, was eventually that which gave you the outcome you desired. And so it is with God. He takes a 13-year-old girl, one who has no political or social power, somebody who appears to be weak, and he chooses to redeem the world through her. And what's so crazy about the story of salvation is that God is always doing stuff like this. 
And just as it, as it was with Mary, Christ's coming into our lives changes our life's course. That Magnificat, which we read today, the song of, that Mary sings in response to Christ's arrival in her womb, is exactly what this world longs for at Christmas. This is the new world being created through Christ that culture longs for. In this song, God does many heroic acts. He scatters the proud. He pulls the mighty down from their thrones. He sends the rich away empty. In other words, God refuses to use the powerful to bring about salvation. He doesn't intend to work through the Roman government. Instead, the nature of his salvation is one that removes the powerful from authority. But more than that, God elevates the weak. At the center of all this, the Lord takes the weak and he exalts them. He takes the hungry and he fills them with good things. In the Magnificat, we catch a glimpse of the great theme of what Jesus brings with him and what we all long for. The theme of the great reversal. I think a major reason why the culture we live in aches for Christmas is because it desperately wants our world to reverse its course. The path we're going down hasn't led us to safety and tranquility. Instead, we're going down a path leading us to destruction and evil. We want Christmas because with it comes the hope that the world will be restored, that the world will be reversed. The Christmas lights... The Christmas trees, the presents, all of these things offer a glimpse of hope amidst the darkness. We all need a little Christmas. For some of us, the advent of Christ is going to be a very painful process. We want to do things on our own. We like to be self-secure and self-sufficient. We don't like the idea of needing to be helped by God. But at the end of the day... What the gospel teaches us is that we, as human beings, are a fragile people who desperately need God to come into our lives. We need him to uproot us from the systems that take advantage of the poor. We need him to destroy the individualistic tendencies that keep us from dependency on God. And that's what the coming of Christ promises. It promises, as painful as it may be, to flip our lives upside down so that we can realize just how needy a people we are. Mary sings, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has sent the rich away empty. We all need a little Christmas. For others, you find yourself in a painful and tender place already. You don't need Jesus to come in and tear you down any more than life itself has. What you really need is restoration. Going home for the holidays is the last last thing you want because home is such a place of pain. Maybe being around your family brings up feelings that make you feel valueless. Or like you didn't meet the expectations of what your family had for you. Maybe you weren't able to buy your kids all the presents they wanted. And you feel like a rotten parent. Maybe you and your spouse have longed for a child but the Lord just hasn't given you one yet. And seeing your nieces and nephews just drives that dagger deep into the wound. What you really need is to feel loved. What you need to experience is Christ raising you up from the mire. Mary sings, He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. We all need a little Christmas. We all need this great reversal.
During Advent, we are once again reminded that we, as humans, can't secure for ourselves what we actually need. What we truly need is not more power, or more money, or a better life, or a perfect spouse, or family. What we truly need is a Savior. And who we need is Jesus. We need this great reversal that Christ brings to change our lives and our world, painful as it may be. But this great reversal can't happen without Christmas. The lowly can't be exalted and the high and mighty can't be brought low unless God himself steps off his throne and dwells among us. This world needs Jesus. Christ himself enters into this great reversal by reversing his own role in creation. The creator becomes man. He exercises left-handed power. He comes to us in absolute weakness. And through him, the world is restored. We hear the Christmas music. We see the decorations. We recognize that everybody around us, we included, long for something. Everywhere around us, the world is weary, grasping for hope. This is Christmas. Christ has promised to come to make all things new, to bring the great reversal. And this is why everybody loves it. This story of the great reversal is for them. This story is for us. And the good news is that this story doesn't end on December 26th. The story of Christmas is one that lasts. When Christ returns, the hope we have forever breaks into reality. And all of the world will know that he is God. And to that, I think we can all collectively say, come quickly, Lord Jesus.